Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Luke. And this is Will and Luke Discuss. A vodcast. And podcast. Where we discuss content related to psychology, personal growth, self-development, and well-being. This This episode, episode, we're discussing The Search for the Secure Base by Jeremy Holmes. So this is a book that was on my reading list when I did a master's degree in psychotherapy. And where you and I covered a, a book on attachment in romance, and um, that was more, uh, I guess, a, a book for the general reader, whereas this is a more academic book, and I thought this would help us dive into yeah. attachment theory in more depth, not just in romance, but in um, how it shapes our sense of self and, and the people we come to be. Mm, mm. It was a, a really great recommendation. I know it was a, it was a book kind of on... Uh, a secondary list that you had that's kind of related to um you know kind of your work and thought it'd be helpful for me as well given our um our career choice and that sort of thing but it's uh it was a i thought it was a really great book it's very uh very dense there's a lot of really good information in it in actually quite a short book so i think we were talking before this around kind of our our general note taking and kind of key highlights of um what popped up in the book it was actually yeah. quite hard to narrow down exactly what <laughs> stood out for us because there's so so much so i think um our general approach we're going to go for today is just kind of give a bit of our understanding around um you know kind of attachment theory where it comes from how it influences us in day-to-day life and then how that impacts our sense of self and also some other key interests um around you know kind of narrative and mm. the story of self and how we can use narrative in order to create change and um kind of outgrow some some old patterns and particularly with people that we work with but also this is helpful for for anybody listening and including ourselves so um, yeah, yeah. I, i'd like to jump in with i guess what the book is and perhaps why jeremy holmes chose to write this um So as you point out, it's nice and short. So um, John Bowlby, who sort of formulated attachment theory, he wrote like a trilogy of of books on his work. And um, I've I've dipped in and out of them, but very briefly. But yeah, they're big. (laughs) So part of what I think Jeremy Holmes is doing here is really reducing the size of all that content for a reader to to, uh, consume much quicker. Also, attachment theory isn't, um, you know, unlike psychoanalysis or CBT, it's not a psychotherapy. It's just a, it's just a scientific theory, descriptive theory. So it's not a practice, a practical mm. theory. So also what Jeremy Holmes is doing is he's trying to pull elements out of psychotherapy and relate it to attachment to make attachment a more... Mm. Um, give it a more clinical angle rather than just a descriptive angle of, of how we come to um, bond with caregivers growing up and how that shapes the way we see ourselves in the world. And I think in doing that, he, he makes, um, he, he tells us his own, he tells a story of how one might come to be who they are and how they might uh, learn to change that if they want to. And he's also kind of really, he does look at some kind of common um, practices in in psychotherapy around change and narrative and applying a, an attachment lens to it as well. So yeah. he's kind of coming at it from from different angles, which which is really useful. And it does seem kind of uh, quite central actually to our relationships, to our sense of self, to how we become who who we are. And yeah. um, you know, it's kind of, 
I suppose, relatively common knowledge amongst, you know, in the field that kind of like there is an impact of childhood into into your adult adult behaviours. So mm. it's um it certainly does feel very important. I think he does a really good job of um kind of like bringing it in and using some very useful analogies. Mm. As well. So let's yeah. uh, let's cover a bit about attachment theory then for for you know how how do we understand it? Um, so. Uh, let, I'll give it a crack and you fill any gaps in. So attachment theory. Yeah, <laughs> this is right at the cusp of my <laughs> knowledge. So I'm, uh, it's, it's pushing me too much. Yeah. It's, it's a theory. Um, so John Bowlby, like I said, was a, was a psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst. <clears throat> but he wanted to bring a more scientific lens to all these sort of Freudian concepts or, that are fairly unfalsifiable. And he thought in doing so, he would bring ethology into humanity so ethology is watching animals in their natural habitat right and learning that way rather than studying them in the lab and he kind of brought that lens into looking at infants and children as they grow up for their caregivers so prior to that like freud and everyone else in their clinical practice would be kind of guessing about people's childhoods based on the stories they're telling as adults Whereas Bowlby's like, well, we can actually study this, right? We can look at what happens to children rather than guessing. And so he built this, a few theories around how uh, children develop and how it kind of shapes who they are and who they become. And the first um, real solid evidence he got for this was from, uh, I think it was a PhD student of his, Mary Ainsworth, who conducted this strange situation experiment and that's where you take a, a child and their primary caregiver, for sake of argument, I'll just say mother, um, into a strange room, that, that, strange meaning that the child's never been there before. There's a group of toys on the floor. There's a stranger sat in the corner of the room and mm -hmm. the, the kids with mum. Most kids would sort of play with the toys <clears throat> briefly. And then... Um, part of the experiment is mum leaves the room for three minutes and and then you just kind of watch how the child reacts and how the child responds when mum comes back in the room. So um, then that's where we come up with these four attachment styles originally, right? So uh, which we called secure, ambivalent, avoidant and disorganised. So the secure kid would like play with the toys. Mum would leave the room. The kid would get upset. Mum comes back in the room. The kid gets a cuddle, shows mum it's upset, gets easily kind of soothed, and then will continue to play with the toys. So it's like, can play with the toys, can explore, gets pissed off and upset when mum leaves, but then is soothed and then can continue. Someone with an ambivalent style would... Um, be upset like the secure person, the secure infant. But when mum came back in, they would be struggled to soothe back down. So they perhaps wouldn't uh, wouldn't go back to the toys. They'll either stay fighting and upset with mum or just cling to her and not be able to explore and play. It's almost like I don't mm. trust that, <laughs> that you're going to stay if I go off and play. So I just need to stick yes. with you. Yeah. Um, on the opposite side of the spectrum, you've got this avoidance style with a kid like, doesn't even batter an eyelid when mom leaves the room, you know, and will just continue to play with the toys and perhaps doesn't particularly acknowledge her when she comes back in. So initially they thought, well, maybe these kids are fine, you know, but when they 
added like measuring anxiety through various physiological measures, heart rate and stuff, they found that actually they they internally were just as anxious as any other kid when mom left, but they just mm. found a way not to express it. Mm. Um, so those are the main three. Yeah. 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 And I suppose um, just to build on um, the secure style. So I guess a, a, a child who has a, a secure attachment style would be what he, he's describing as um, psychological security, which is yeah. entirely dependent on the caregiver. So basically what he's saying is like in infancy, if our caregivers, caregivers have given us um, consistency, reliability, responsiveness, mm. non-possessive warmth and firm boundaries, there can be a internalized secure base, which offers this psychological immunity um, to to the child. So w- with with those in in place, they can yeah. they can see themselves as safe when the mother has left the room. But on on the flip side of that, if you know if care is um, what it describes as suboptimal, there'll yeah. be these uh, uh, whether they're protest behaviors or repressed behaviors, kind of that you've outlined in avoidant and um, uh, amb- ambivalent styles as well you know that they'll repress they'll project they'll split off they'll um suppress their vulnerability um in exchange for like more external security yeah so they're all strategies for getting as much um as much contact and attachment uh, and safety as Mm. possible and Mm. that's that depends on how their caregivers generally respond so if their caregivers um like you point out there can be responsive and and nurturing and consistent with that. Then the child can just trust that when I'm upset, I can come to you, I can get calmed and see down and then I can go off and play knowing that you'll be there. If I get upset again, that's the key Mm. point. Right. Mm, mm. And then whereas if the uh, caregiver is primarily not in tune, you know, they might meet their other needs and might feed them and provide them toys and stuff. But if they're fundamentally not, uh, he he had a really nice phrase, something about seeing them seeing them as a you know having an inner life basically, but seeing them as Marks, conscious yeah. beings with yeah. with an yeah. internal existence and being able to tune into that. If 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 that's missing, then the the child will never have their inner life reflected back at them, and they'll those mm-hmm. needs won't be met. Needs to be seen, need to be attuned to, so they push it down. But if yeah, that's kind of met some of the time, <laughs> then it's like, I know I can get it if I try hard enough, but I'm going to have to cling to you and keep screaming to get it because I feel like, you know, if I go off and play, you might disappear. So there's a, there's a lack of trust in in that ambivalence. So. I think you, you pick up on a really interesting part. I think may, maybe the term you're looking for was like that mirroring process that the, the mother and the um, the child can have around like that can enhance a child's sense of self and um, create that internal mm. secure base that if they if their pain is responded to as like kind of like ah oh, that that appears to be pain and it's responded to in a nurturing way then they can kind of re- relate that feeling a- as their own and know that it's get kind of can be nurtured mm. internally as well so like um i suppose something i've written down here is you know the, the avoidant if it's an avoidant child, they have a split off sense of self that's um, unavailable for for comfort. So there's obviously, if that's the process of them growing up, that they eventually realise that actually it's better just to kind of like separate myself from sense of self because no one's going to comfort me anyway. Yeah. I, 
uh, I might as well not not be here then with the ambivalent child. Um, there's like a deficient sense of self. So they're often clinging to the mother. I think that's what you were saying, you know, kind of when the mother comes back in the room, that the child would be kind mm. of clinging to the mum for a sense of safety without having their own internal secure base to kind of return back to because that hasn't been mirrored back to them. Right. part of the process. I'm yeah. just going to pick up on something there. So yeah. the process mm. of it. So at this stage in this strange situation experiment, I think the mm. kids are something like nine to 18 months old. Yes. So at the moment we're talking about an external secure base, yeah. right? It's, it's patterns yeah. of assumptions of where their actual parent is going to be. Mm. But then over time, uh, that starts to slowly to become internalized. So it's now no longer mm. like where's, you know, at, let's take it to adulthood. If you've had that secure attachment, it's now no longer where's my mum, you know, when you're 25. Mm. But it's like, mm. if I'm distressed, do I have a kind of inner sense that I'll just, I'll be all right. I'll get through this. I'll be able to soothe mm. myself and yeah. reach out for help if I need it, soothe myself if I, I can, like if, you know, other people aren't around. So yeah, at this age, we're talking about an external secure base being like a physical person, but then over yes. the time that becomes a sense of like identity we hold within us. Mm-hmm. He, he talks as well a bit, bit later on in the book about how like we, um, like around age five, our kind of, uh, our voice becomes internal. Like we stop kind of shouting out just what pops up in our minds. Mm. you know, externally, but actually becomes internal as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think um, something may- maybe worth touching on is what he talks about is like the six domains of um, attachment theory mm-hmm. might kind of um, kind of help kind of wrap up these concepts. So I think we- we've spoken a bit about um, the concept of a, a secure base. Um, right. Yeah, and he's saying that, that can be like representative of a secure base, not just physical as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a secure yeah. base is, um, it's like a sense of home you can return to when distressed, um, and, a, and a platform from which you can explore the world from. So mm-hmm. yeah, as an, as an infant, that's an actual person, usually mum, And then as you grow a bit older, it might become dad, grandparents, siblings, but yeah. as an adult, you have an internal secure base, hopefully, which you can mm. then explore yourself and the world from so yeah it's a secure yeah. base is the concept but um it's it can grow b- from being a, a a physical real object in the world to being an, an abstract f- sense or feeling in our minds and bodies yeah i, I think you, you've touched on um number two which was the exploration and play which is like key key to a secure base capacity so like the ability to kind of step out in the world knowing that you've got a secure base to return back to that closeness can be restored once you've kind of left those secure relationships. Yeah. So a yeah. secure base is key to be able to play and explore. And that's how we learn mm. essentially. So yeah, mm. really important to know that. Mm. Yeah. If you feel safe, right. You can learn, you can, um, you can play, but if you're like, I don't know if I'll be safe, if I go off and explore, then you're just going to have to cling and then you miss out on all that learning experience. Yeah, kind of stuck in survival mode almost yeah. as opposed to learning mode. Um, the, the other one's um, protest, assertiveness and anger. And I think that one's kind of around that our, um, that our, our protests will be, will be heard and that kind of that we can pr- protest against something and it will be responded to in kind of a, a, fair, a fair way. So it's yeah. um, 
that you're kind of, and also that you're able to kind of express your wants and needs and that you can kind of repair relationships based on that, that you've been able to express yourself and your, I suppose your preferences. Mm. This is later in life um, without fear of that relationship ending. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, excuse me. It, so with the, avoidant attachment style in this um strange situation they don't protest right mum mum's gone and the child is internally anxious she comes back and they don't protest and so they assume it's that's because generally for that child that's made things worse if i show any sort yeah. of neediness or anger not not only has it not helped meet my needs but it's actually created more distance like perhaps i've been completely ignored or shut away in a room or um mm. my parents got angry at me back so it's like well don't <laughs> don't show your protest behavior hide your anger and if you just pretend pretend like everything's all right at least they're still hovering around and things are stable and okay so, mm. so. and i guess um like further to add to that is kind of being able to respond to to loss as well i think that definitely ties into what you were saying that you kind of what he says, like, but Bobby says that coping with loss is is key to psychological maturity. So if mm. we haven't been able to, haven't learned how to cope with um, whether it's a caregiver or someone kind of leaving us or or endings very well, um, through our early childhood, it's going to become more difficult in in adulthood. If that's yeah, kind of been modelled to us as well. Yeah, so we might protest at a separation, but a loss is like a permanent separation, right? And so, mm. um grieving is the natural process of loss and if we mm. aren't allowed to grieve or we we haven't yeah if we haven't got any space or any mirroring to grieve and we keep that in then that's gonna cause all sorts of problems later depression probably i wonder um i guess it's trying to just summarize a bit about what we're talking about whether you could just talk a little bit about um internal working models and kind of a uh, the reflect the reflection function as well. I wonder if that's something worth touching on. Yeah, yeah. So these are the the last two of the six, are they? That you yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, in when I was talking a moment ago about how we have a secure base, which you know, as a as an infant or or any mammal for that matter, as a small mammal, your secure base is mum essentially. Um, and then I talked about how for us humans that can become internalized. So we. You know, as an adult, we don't cry to mum in the same way we did when we were two. But so what's happened in between? Well, what's happened is we've built an internal working model, as Bowlby called it, of, of ourselves and the world. And it it's like a, a a map, a framework, a schema, a template of of how the world works and how we're responded to and who we are. And mm-hmm. we build this map out of out of our experience right so we have all these experience of expressing needs how that's responded to and all the implicit messages we get through that we create a map and then that's the template from which we make all our assumptions and predictions going forward Mm -hmm. so if um i don't know if if a parent was abusive for example you kind of have two choices as as a kid either they're evil and wrong and wants to do do me harm in which case i have no secure base i'm dependent and helpless in the home of someone who's bad or i'm bad and i deserve it 
in which mm-hmm. case I can live in safety because my parent can be good. I can live in safety, but I'm just a bad person. And we yeah. well, we almost always plump for that second one, right? So that, that's an example of what might be part of your internal working model of yourself is that I'm bad. And, um, and then all these assumptions like don't express myself, don't, don't be angry. Like if someone, uh, wants to take me take something from me you should submit and let them have it kind of thing so putting your needs second that sort of stuff yeah 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 conversely um, we might have the opposite kind of working model if we had our needs attuned to and met mm -hmm. um and with like reflect reflexive function um he says that like the capacity to talk um coherently about oneself life history relationships and relational distress so but like saying that that's that's a really key component of um be able to kind of understand your um attachment style and um i guess how how that affects you is being able to like talk openly about the things that have happened to you and be able to there's a there's a story that makes sense about how that's contributed to your life and kind of like a general level of um awareness and ability to construct a narrative about what's happened to you mm. And um, make sense of like quite observable behaviors in your life, like make those um, unconscious things quite explicit, is my understanding. Yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, that's yeah. that's it's probably a really good point here to put in the um, second major um, experiment in attachment theory. So the first yeah. one was that strange situation with children, and the second mm-hmm. one is something called the adult attachment interview, which as you might guess, is with adults. So in this, they you interview an adult for about an hour, asking them all questions that are going to trigger their attachment system. So um, questions about their caregivers growing up, their parents, their family, their home life as they were children, um, any questions about being hurt and what they did when they were hurt, questions about loss, um, you know, describing their caregivers characters that sort of thing all these questions that trigger the attachment system and in this experiment you're not really listening to the content of their answers but you're listening for the way in that the style with which they answer the question Mm, mm. and then and then they end up being able to categorize them and relate the way in which we talk about ourselves and our lives with this with the same categories as how infants respond to mum in this strange situation experiment. Mm. Experiment. So, with as you just pointed out here, with a secure attachment style, you might be able to construct a narrative about your life. So, tell a story about these questions that are being asked to you. You know, what, what was your mum like when you were a kid? You might be able to give a sort of coherent story that flows and that is kind of not too little information, but not too much that makes sense to the listener as if I'm holding mm-hmm. your mind in mind when I'm telling you the story. Yeah. It's got emotion in it, but it's also got logic to it. So it makes sense, but it's not just void of emotion. And that's the sort of, um, yeah, secure narrative. And that's to do that. We need this reflexive function, which is, um, yeah, the point of what you just raised. So someone with um, a dismissive style might be just giving really short answers. How was your home life growing up? Fine. <laughs> what, what were your parents like? Yeah, perfect. Great. There's just no content. It's, it's just mm. very short, mm. shut down, small answers. Whereas the ambivalent style might go off 
all the emotion might be in there, but there's no coherence. There's no logic to the stories. They're jumping Structure. around. Yeah. You're like, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know what, what your point is, but you've been talking for 20 minutes now. That's a, that yeah. kind of thing. And so what we're in therapy, at least he's suggesting what we're trying to do with these two styles is help them bring that narrow, that reflexive function in so that they mm. can tolerate emotion at the same time as bringing logic into the story. And somehow yes. that creates this internal sense of security that hasn't been there up till now and can support with like remodeling the story as well like if you're able to kind of understand it in its entirety with the emotions attached to it you're kind of in a better position to like you understand it on a on a broader level yeah. thus you're able to kind of re remodel your your story and um maybe kind of introduce more helpful behaviors if, if the previous ones have been destructive. Right. Right. So with that, that, that yeah. example I raised of being abused and just like having to decide as a child that, well, I'm, I'm bad. Then mm. now that you're an adult and you have your independence, if you're able to bring that emotion and that story back to life as an adult, you can see, well, obviously I wasn't bad. Like I, I was a, a helpless infant born into a dangerous mm. situation. And you can even mm. take that as far as, and, and what was it about my parent that led them to do this? Well, actually, you know, they grew up in this war and they were probably abused in this way. And you can start to paint a much more logical, coherent picture of how things happen that aren't just like so personal and, and how, you know, in that example, I'm bad or something like that. I guess like tying it a bit to the book in terms of, um, you know his his angle on it. He's saying that like through through like challenging somebody's narrative and providing them a a safe, secure base in which to explore those feelings, you can like re-narrativize yeah um, your story and your life if you're kind of challenged gently in a way that isn't going to kind of uh, cause the person to shut down or protest. Is sort of like a safe right. space to explore those feelings and emotions yeah. and the uh, the associated behaviors yeah good point so that becomes the point of therapy yeah. <clears throat> is that the therapist themselves and the space you create together is the, se the secure base that you need to explore yourself your mm. life your narrative your story your feelings mm -hmm. well I, therefore I, yeah contribute oh. to an internal secure base the search for the secure base <laughs> <laughs> great yeah that, i yeah. feel like cool. that's um cool. i've really i know i spoke a lot through that but i feel like that's that's I've good. got all the background stuff I need to out on the table to feel that we can just riff on this now. <laughs> good, good, good. I, I think it's important. Like looking at the time, that was kind of roughly what we had in mind. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to take maybe, uh, maybe, um, uh, I suppose a, a third of this to explain what we're actually talking about. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I suppose, um, I guess in terms of maybe just jumping to things interest us the most, yeah. um, I'll, I'll kind of just jump to one of the chapters I found quite interesting around, um, attachment and narrative in psychotherapy so okay. in terms of like that that as a tool um to kind of go deeper into the individual story um mm -hmm. you know so I, I guess just some of the things I've, i've put down here you know like the work of psychotherapy is to find stories that correspond with experience so like by disrupting cliched stories in avoidant attachment as one thing so as you were saying like avoidant people can have quite um cliched over extensive stories um, that kind of don't, um, uh, so I'm, so I'm getting that the wrong way around, like in, with avoidant people, they can mm -hmm. have quite short, sharp, blunt yeah. answers that are kind of a bit cliched 
where like mm-hmm. with narrative you can kind of expand that and open it up a little bit whereas yeah. with ambivalent they can have two wider reaching stories yeah so um it's like with the avoidant guess, or dismissive yeah uh, yeah okay i've just realized i should say the in the adult attachment interview they gave the same styles different names <laughs> than they did yeah it was a strange situation yeah. so when yeah. i say avoidant or dismissive i mean the same thing or if i say ambivalent or preoccupied they're also mm-hmm. the same thing that's it's going to yeah. get confusing for anyone who's brand new to attachment theory but yeah <laughs> um god i think that the the main um i know i'm kind of like riffing off a couple quotes here but like what yeah. he says you know the main que- que- quest as a worker is to look for a more elaborated all-embracing spontaneous individualized flexible story that yeah. encompasses a greater range of experience and i think that really yeah captures it nicely and how how story can really influence that because often we have we can argue a point with logic and that kind of gives us we, we, there's like a degree of certainty we have with that but with yeah. with stories and like through art and music and creation kind of like yeah the the flow of life we can we can create stories that like we understand on like a physiological gut like intense yeah. level that makes sense to us and i think what yeah. story allows us to do is to kind of like unpack that and i think another key part of this is what he's saying is it's around the ability to story break and then story make so it's a lot around kind of like deconstruction of like previous stories and then constructing new ones and i think that that's like quite deeply a, a creative process yeah. that can be yeah. supportive through like whether it's psychotherapy um or just a general narrative approach yeah um Journaling. I think that's, that's the bit that like yeah, re- yeah really exciting yeah exactly um you know some of the um uh you know some of the approaches yeah through through journaling being able to kind of like write as if you were somebody else or different mm-hmm. angles of looking at yourself or yeah um the person you're working with it's it's a really interesting interesting yeah. thing yeah and yeah. also like a part of that is giving someone the, um, maybe not giving, but supporting someone to kind of have the, what he describes like the aggression to break yeah. your stories down, like giving yeah. someone the motivation, the drive to be like, this is not who I am anymore. And yeah. supporting someone to create new stories that are kind of in a, a way that can contain the the emotion that goes with what you're feeling. It's, yeah. it's really and, fascinating. I think this that, is the chapter that, same, that really got me. Yeah. <laughs> that's that yeah. same anger yeah. or protest that we repressed, um, that we talked about earlier, right? That's like, why mm. would we learn to repress our anger? Well, if it gets us less attachment, if it means we're more rejected, more ignored than we might, but it's that same anger, that same protest we need, as you point out, to sort of break these, um, cliched stories up and allow the emotion to come through Mm. them so at the Mm. moment so for the avoidant style um not remembering much of your experience not really being in tune with your uh sensations and emotions means you come out with stories that are are either short or only logical and objective and there's no they lack they lack details yeah yeah they're like poorly fleshed out there's no yeah and there's no inner life in there. So it, it might be like, you know, I went to the shops and I picked up some lettuce and then I came home, but like, 
what were you what was going on in you what thoughts and feelings are you having in this process you know mm. that's what makes a story whereas the ambivalent or preoccupied style would have all the emotion but there'd be none of the objective stuff none of the logic so it's just hard to comprehend it's like and i was overwhelmed and then i was thinking this and that reminded me of that time when this happened but then i felt it's like whoa 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 <laughs> like like pause a second and uh you know that so you were here and then you're feeling this way and you thought this and then you went here and it's like yeah the objective for either swing of this attachment style is the same to help ourselves and others construct narratives about their life that have both the objective and their inner life the subjective in the mix together but the avoidant has kind of split off from all the inner life, the subjective mm. and the ambivalence just too overwhelmed to bring the sort of um, logical coherent narrative to their inner life that because they've mm. not got that uh, and, you internalized know, secure base container. Yes. Yeah. I think this is like a really key concept of the book. That's like, yeah. super interesting. I, I think he talks about like how language itself words has structure. Like yeah. there's, there's kind of structure to that, but then the meaning we give to that is what creates like a narrative. And that's kind mm -hmm. of our, our sense of self. We are, there is like a, a storied self. He says like a sense of like who we were, who, sorry, who we are, mm -hmm. where we came from, where we're going, the things that have contributed to our life. And like, without that ability to construct a secure, mm -hmm. coherent narrative, we're at risk of being like, you know, misunderstood or lost. And, you know, the people we, we work with, you know, that there's, they're often trying to piece together parts of their parts of their life and try and make sense of them in a coherent way. And that's a way in which we can, we can support them. I, I like um, what he says about, you know, raw experience plus meaning equals narrative. Mm. So it's kind of what you're saying, like really tapping into those kind of raw emotions of the situation and being able to kind of um, give them the structure that words and you know sentences and like logic gives us but yeah. not kind of going too far either way yeah because yeah. lang like yeah language is a way of symbolizing life and experience right so it's like yeah rather than this uncontained mess that doesn't make sense that's going on within me if i can put words to it or just symbolize it in some way even if it's a drawing you know if i can symbolize it in some way that then I can eat and especially if I need an external secure base, which I can then show to you and you can show me back that you've understood my inner mm. life and perhaps even help me move on and explore it further. Then yeah, it, it brings that sense of um, like my experience is containable. It's not overwhelming. You know, a baby is just so overwhelmed with their experience that they're just helpless. They need to, an external sense of security. Whereas by being, by building this, what he calls a reflexive function or, or a, a capacity to bring narrative to your experience. It's incredible really that that, that can help us feel okay in ourselves, in our skin. It, mm. it can help us make sense of who we are, where we've come from. Uh, uh, what, what he's saying where we're aiming for, you know, in terms of like what a secure narrative would be that for someone who's kind of able to distinguish between their own experience and that of others. And someone who's able to re represent their feelings yeah. in 
a coherent way and have the, you know, what it says here is like have the capacity to break up stories and reform them so they are more in keeping with the flux of experience. So they're a lot more kind of grounded in in the changing nature of reality. Like they're able to update their stories yeah. and not hold them so tightly that they kind of can get stuck in old patterns as well. So it's not such a case of like having one story that stays forever. It's a matter of um, having, as I think that's what like reflexive means as opposed yeah. to like reflective, like reflexive right. that you can, um, it's kind of movable and adaptable and, and flows and can change um, yeah. that can, can, that can deal with, losses and deal with the breakdown of reality as you see it because you might have a story that you hold quite tightly but then when reality uh contradicts that that could kind of for some people just totally like yeah shatter them because because they're too they're either too close to the feelings of the story or they're too close to the logic of the story mm. and they can't let go of that whereas mm. like having a balance between the two allows you to kind of uh, be movable with an ever-changing world and fluctuating emotions and relationships yeah so for example with yeah. the dismissive type their story might be something like i'm fine and strong on my own i don't need anybody i i can explore and i i almost there's a there can be on this side of things a narcissistic streak like yeah i'm, I'm kind of superior in some way and then it's a to, threat it's a threat to challenge that like yeah. story that kind of holds them so strong exactly yeah. so if they can yeah. set up life such that that story can not be challenged then that's fine mm. right but as soon as they get mm. um close to someone and they start to feel a need to have them and and that suddenly that their inner life is dependent on what someone else does or says it's like that's mm. challenging the narrative and the drive will be get out <laughs> like can't cope yeah. with this like be be alone again like stay um and whether that's actually alone is in ending relationships or or just sort of cutting down emotion from the interaction so there's no intimacy so that we can maintain a relationship at a more logical level rather than an intimate level. Mm. And he uses um, like Freudian technology. Uh, sorry, my headphones just fallen out. Um, use a Freudian term of identification that we kind of, um, we accommodate things and assimilate them as we grow. So we kind of, uh, we can almost learn to embrace those new stories as as our own where they might initially have been quite confronting like there's something that we can kind of ad adopt and kind mm -hmm. of become part of who we are i think another interesting part of this is um i can't remember the exact term we used but i think it was like we do kind of have these natural stories that we carry with us mm -hmm. kind of anyway kind of outside of attachment but just in terms of like culture lifestyle life experience there are things we carry through with us kind of as part of our psychological continuity moving through time like we are whether it's kind of like demographically or where we live or just certain right. life experiences there are certain things that we kind of know to be true that we carry with us through through life mm -hmm. it kind of talks about them as like nodes of experience so it's kind of not all i think he's basically just acknowledging that it's not all shiftable Sometimes there are things that are quite deeply ingrained in us that might might stick. <clears throat> yeah, well, as what the the um, there's a difference between changing a story and having the capacity to do that. So this reflexive function um, 
it's sort of the capacity to process your experience in mm. in a coherent narrative where you both have the subject and the object mm. um but yeah it doesn't mean that secure people wouldn't necessarily get stuck or mm. or or hold um beliefs that weren't serving them it would just mean that when it came time to process it that function would be there such that they would be more able to quickly and more likely to in the moment as it happens because they weren't mm. either overwhelmed by emotion or or by distance in the first place um yeah i think that's all i have to say about that what um th there was a part of this uh book that you thought was um particularly interesting i'm, I'm kind of around the, the construction of of self um because i know we'd spoke in kind of our first ever podcast we did a uh, attachment and it's um yeah and how it uh, is in regards to relationships i think i'd just be interested to kind of hear just maybe a little expanded version of what we spoke about earlier around yeah, yeah. your interest oh well, i'm gonna try and do this sort of in real time so how you can help me construct this narrative um so I guess what I see is attachment being so much talked about in terms of relationships and, you know, rightly so, because it's, that's what it's all about. But I think in that there's a, we can miss or not put shine enough light on um, how attachment theory helps explain our sense of self, our sense of who we are. Um, and so by, Okay. So we're, you know, we're an infant with this mess of inner life that's just all overwhelm and, and emotion and it's uncontained and it's, we have no uh, internal working models or inner maps yet. And we put it out there in the world, right? It, no baby can lie or deceive yet. They just put their inner life into the world and see what comes back. And what, you know, over time, all this stuff is mirrored back one way or another. And then we build this internal working model but it's also part of that model is who we are we, we we're getting a mirror back and that mirror tells us tells us who we are and that's our our self-concept and it's almost like that becomes an object in and of itself so i've got my raw experience and then i've got my self-concept which is almost like it's almost like my idea of me is like a person, you know, it's, it's like I've got an idea of Will and I've got an idea of other people in my life and I've got an idea of Luke. And it's almost like I have a relationship with my own idea of myself. Um, and the reason that I'm bringing this up is because it, that relationship is probably like we take it everywhere. Like, yes, yes, you might have problems with, I don't know, a spouse or your mom or whatever, but our relationship with ourselves goes with us wherever we go. <laughs> so it's almost like any any um, mental health difficulty or, or or challenge or struggle in life is gonna have something to do with your relationship with yourself in that moment. Mm. And 
so I, I guess what I'm saying it, to sum to sum some of that up is that to me seems perhaps even more important than the way our attachment plays out in romantic relationships, which mm. is you know affects us in ebbs and waves throughout our life as we get into different mm. relationships. But the sense of attachment we have with our or our self, with our self concept, is for me. I feel like that should be central to. Well, it is central to every experience we have. We we bring ourselves with us, right? Mm. I'm thinking a bit about how, yeah, it, it seems like it's as much a, a personal journey as it is one that's kind of in relationship with other people. You know, that kind of sense of um, you know, that idea of kind of loss of ego and kind of regaining yourself through through that method. You know, like the the Jungian quote of like, we first have to like find ourselves before we can lose it. Okay. In sense yeah, yeah. of like kind of being able to find our own secure base before we can then kind of explore and create new, new and updated versions of ourselves, as opposed to focusing on kind of just how this affects us in relation to other people. I'm not sure I've got much more to add on that. I think there's certainly a lot like I'm kind of musing around, around that, but it's certainly, um, yeah, it, there's definitely a big focus on like how attachment affects us in relationships and like it's it can often be explored with that in mind. Like how can I be more secure for my partner or how can I be less anxious for mm. the person I'm with or um, I'm avoidant so therefore I push everybody away whereas like that's actually probably quite an internal journey. There's certain parts of yourself that you, you push away like the repressed self like we deny aspects of ourself in order to feel mm-hmm. safe although that does have impacts on other people um maybe it's more of a, a solo journey to embark on for people well yeah another way of when we did um another way of putting this is when we looked at nathaniel brandon's six pillars of self-esteem you know we mm. looked at how much self-esteem touches everything like your sense of worth carries yes. with you in everything you do and this is your ability exactly to make what choice. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. shapes it in the first place, yeah. right? And and yeah. if you're the more insecure we are, the more that there's that becomes a sort of rigid um, staple. And you know, we, you could live the rest of your life with you know, either you're dismissive and you've denied intimacy from your life, or you're preoccupied and you, you've died denied yourself. Uh, exploration and finding out who you are Mm. and it's like um yeah so this capacity as you were pointing out to to allow the bits of yourself that have either you've denied because you've split off because they're too threatening Mm. to let back in or you've denied because you know you've never had the chance to explore and play um and learn that way like Either way, like it's so sad to get to think of being stuck in that for so many years. And um, mm. I don't know, this book gives a real sense of hope for how, given the right space and environment, this stuff can be, you know, you, you can start off from where you left off <laughs> with your first mm. um, um, attachment figures. And yeah, if you're dismissive you're, or avoidant, you can you can learn to allow feelings back in and to become intimate. And it's going to be a scary process, but it's mm. 
going to add more meaning to your life. And equally, if you're ambivalent or preoccupied, you can learn to shape and learn, find yourself in such a secure place. It's, for example, in therapy where you can learn to exp- feel safe enough to explore who you actually are. So you don't mm. feel the need to be so dependent on whether your attachment figures text you back today or whatever. Mm. I'm thinking about, you know, kind of the the wide impacts of this, you know, in terms of, um, you know, trusting oneself to make decisions, you know, if, yeah. if you're kind of a, like allowing um, feeling to come back in or providing structure to your, your inner narrative, you know, it's not just in relationships, but it's actually kind of in for choices you make yourself. So you know, in terms of, you know, thinking about, um, you know, what 12 rules for life, like treat yourself yeah. as someone worthy of... Um, taking care of you know yeah. like actually being able to develop that that intimacy and closeness with yourself that you're yeah. able to kind of forgive yourself for your mistakes yeah treat yourself like you're actually worth looking after like prioritizing yourself and seeing yourself as um having value putting yeah. yourself kind of first when when appropriate yeah um, not putting others needs before yours all the time not being self-sacrificing yeah. there's a whole wide-ranging impact that a, a strong, um, secure sense of self allows you like that sense of exploration. Like, yeah. do you go for new jobs? Do you try and extend your career? Or are you worried about what other people think about you or their opinions of you? Or like, how do you view your body? How do you like treat yourself? What do you eat? How do you like nurture yourself? Yeah. Like in regards to your health and obviously relationships, but also like your career and your, um, like the way you treat family and the way yeah. you like um, allow yourself to enjoy things because you're kind of free of um, maybe like guilt, opinions, shame. Like you've kind of relinquished those stories because you're able to kind of mm. know you can return back to this secure, forgiving, um, compassionate base that will yeah. kind of always, always be there for you every yeah. time you step out into the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and as adults, as you've just highlighted nicely there that we need to find that in ourselves it's it's not external anymore we like or or at least it it shouldn't be in healthy development like it to to have a um that sense of i don't know we've used lots of jargon today but if i could really hone in these just two two points it's the this these two needs for one for intimacy but the other for authenticity and so, you know, the avoidant people have sacrificed intimacy and uh, ambivalent people mm-hmm. have sacrificed um, authenticity. And as you're saying, that that might lead you not to pursue things you want, not to take risks because um, you don't have mm-hmm. a sense of inner safety that you'll be okay. And you're so concerned about other people's opinions and rejection. You don't allow yourself to be authentic. Mm-hmm. Or conversely, you're so concerned about... Um, being enmeshed with people that you, you you can explore the world just fine but you don't find intimacy and you know it's it's not as black or white as that where you can have mixtures of these patterns but um yeah it's i find it sad when knowing that some people will never experience what one half of these needs you know and and it's possible to do yeah. so <laughs> I think um, that there's a, a part he talks about at the um, kind of in one of the 
the end chapters i does think kind of summarizes what you've just said then i think you articulate that really really well it's going to stick with me for sure but there's um it's kind of saying like in, in regards to kind of um loss and change and things you know moving on and growth and that sort of thing you know it says when we can tolerate aloneness um sorry aloneness conversely we have achieved a sense of autonomy we can allow ourselves to get close without fear of engulfment or being destroyed by the other mm. you know so like that is particularly for like an avoidant person like allowing themselves to kind of get closer to those intimate needs that they have without kind of worrying about the, the wider impacts on on themselves and um something i kind of wanted to touch on i guess before we start wrapping up as you know um in that chapter he, he unpacked um the the ode by i've forgotten who it's by what's it wordsworth, wordsworth? yeah williams wordsworth and he says um it, it kind of goes through the journey of kind of loss and rediscovery mm -hmm. and i'm sure i'm not kind of going to be saying this as well as he said it but he um you know he talks a lot about um I'll read a little bit of it here that stood yeah, out to me. It says it. the the habitual um this new perspective encompassing and accepting loss goes beyond it to something deeper. The object can be reassured in its turn that all that will be well, forebode not any severing of our loves. The habitual sway of everyday nature can be enjoyed unambiguously, no longer passionately adored, perhaps, but also not hated for reminding the poet of how things were and how they can no longer be. The poet has come through. He has won his palms race in which the only way is to lose and to know that one has lost. I think for, for me, that really um, symbolizes kind of the being able to kind of support people or ourselves to kind of get to that secure base that we know that like loss <laughs> is, is growth and it's kind of safe to feel those things and it's mm. safe to explore that and that we we can't avoid avoid that like if we cling too closely to those narratives we're kind of closing off from real meaningful change mm. and if we cling too close to other people as a external source of validation or security we're not allowing ourselves the opportunity to kind of explore that independently we kind of become too overly reliant on other people and we, we aren't able yeah. to experience that loss ourselves and grow and learn from it and know that it was that it was ours to lose and ours to to grow from you know yeah well there's a paradox yeah. in yeah. that ambivalent side of things where yeah. like you you say that because if we've not yeah the the ambivalent style <clears throat> lots of the distress displayed by the ambivalent style isn't their actual authentic distress but distress it and trying to keep the attachment figure there so in what you just mm. described then it's like do I feel safe enough that I have your attention that I can be with my own grief whilst you're there, but without having to be so preoccupied with what you're thinking about me or if you're going to leave or if you, you know, if I've not got your attention. So it, he, he talks in the book in working with therapeutically with that as like, you almost have to give when people have an ambivalent relationships with themselves and with, with you, and if you're trying to help them, you always have to give them more to start with, like give them, mm. give, have mm. them feel so assured that you will be there, that they feel safe enough to explore themselves. And, and in this case, or if we're talking about loss to be with their own grief without having to be preoccupied with where you are or where your attention is. Mm. Mm. So I was, 
kind of didn't know what direction we'd go with this one because <laughs> it's kind of a how to integrate attachment in psychotherapy you know kind of we both kind of approaching this from the angle as a you know psychotherapist and social worker who some of these um this information might be useful yeah. for me but we've certainly kind of um yeah looking at it in quite a unique, unique way it feels like we've we've got a bit, little bit philosophical which i quite enjoyed i think we've uh it's it's certainly a, a book that um has a lot of depth to it beyond mm. kind of a strategy and technique and theory mm. it, it's got it's certainly got um yeah some really underlying themes of kind of hope and yeah. support yeah which i it, liked in particular it also it says something to the self-help movement i think which um i don't know if he says this explicitly but he's kind of like what we want for psychological health is to build an internalized secure base right yeah but he's kind of saying we can't really achieve that on our own and so if you've not experienced it before if you've not had that mirroring then you're again i'm not i'm not necessarily staking that i fully believe this i don't know what people are capable of but he seems to be suggesting that you're going to have to do that with another human being to get to that point um mm. you know if like it takes as the organisms that we are like you're going to need your experience to be and you're going to need to find trust in another human being you're going to need your experience to be seen by them and reflected back at you mm. to be able to build the secure base and it kind of says you know i'm not obviously you can do lots of stuff in terms of um personal growth on your own but that internalization of a secure base it's both it gives both hope and a bit of it closes down an avenue that like perhaps mm. you know maybe it can happen through a partner or a really good friend or in therapy but it might not be something you can do on your own well you know what he says is that like change is around like how change happens is around like containment so getting a secure base so yeah. kind of what you're saying is that he thinks that, that can't be done alone necessarily insight which is like reflexive function which is like role of therapist can support people to do that but then again like some people might have natural strengths in that or with you know other people around them yeah um to talk to and then new experience so that kind of emotional rupture and repair that he talks about yeah um is like crucial to kind of developing like interpersonal functioning and developing self-esteem so he says it's not about like just bringing the unconscious to the conscious but accepting the disowned parts of self and i think he is insinuating i guess it is, it's a book for psychotherapists and yeah. like social works and stuff so be saying that it, it kind of goes beyond awareness it's not just kind of around like introducing like intellectualizing what's going on like it can't just be kind of explained to you it's something you need to have like insight there needs to be like some development of self-awareness that is kind of done through through therapy is what he's implying yeah it's not just a cerebral process it's um you know you have to get in touch with your actual sensations and emotions and be able to put words to them not just sort of mm. guess intellectually oh i think i'm this way because this happened to me and yeah not being feeling touch with it literally in touch mm. with it he talks about kind of being like a transference interpretation that kind of happens during 
therapy for people is that they kind of a they kind of adopt and assimilate those new meanings that are kind of developed through through that and i think we're saying like with like there's emergent meanings that come from more dynamic therapies as opposed to more structured ones so if you're kind of comparing it to like cbt potentially potentially where you're kind of um acknowledging like how your your thoughts affect your emotions that lead to your behaviors like it's quite like a structured formulaic mm. way of doing things but whereas more with like this dynamic narrative storied self incorporating approach mm. like it's you're able to kind of a uh, develop new meanings that can like transfer into your story and your mm. sense of self that you're kind of talking about so i think in terms of the uh the approach he's very much talking about like um he's advocating for maybe less structured intellectualized approaches and more kind of um insightful and uh i, I think he hesitated to use this word but like corrective experience yeah. sort of approaches where people can kind of experience a change and what it feels like to have a new understanding of the situation. Yeah. What's well, that balance yeah. between chaos and order, isn't it? You have to have some mm. structure mm. to feel contained and safe, you know, if so, there needs to be some sort of rules. Like we know how long the sessions are, for example, if we're talking about psychotherapy and I've, and we kind of know why we're here and, and what we're doing and what I can expect mm. from you in terms of your, um, attention mm. and reflection and things, but but yeah, for a, CBT could be an example where there's too much order, such that it mm. you know, cages you in and doesn't allow that self exploration. But yeah, I think a a yeah. good CBT therapist with definitely with people of with course, an ambivalent yeah. style can really help put narrative to their experience, and they they might not understand if they've not been trained in attachment, they might not, might not understand. From this angle that you know that that's what they're doing that they're being a secure base helping this client put narrative to their experience you know explore mm. other alternatives you know how would you see mm. things differently what what other alternatives to this situation are there it's helping really construct a narrative but yeah that, um that's my mm. way of saying it's I agree. <laughs> yeah yeah i guess it's just food food for thought it's like yeah. the sort of approach to people we work with with need. Do some people need more order? Do some people need more uh, um, more acknowledgement of raw experience within a contained environment? Um, yeah, certainly, certainly, kind of inspirational for getting me thinking about kind of my my approach to work, and also just in regards to kind of extending it on top of all the other things we've spoken about. I guess it just kind of adds a new a new lens and. Um, particularly in regards to like the narrative and the story itself. I think that's some, that's probably my, my key takeaways yeah. from today. Yeah. It's certainly, cool. if I think about personally, it's certainly cause I'm, um, have an ongoing therapist I see, and it certainly has me think a bit more like, I think I have a tendency to want to make sure I'm working on specific goals, you know, that I'm make, making the most out of things. And I think mm. that can aim towards too much order. And actually, when I read this book, it's kind of like reminding me that almost <laughs> you, he talks, he has a whole section about aimlessness, right? On one level, you don't have an aim because you, in the process of growth, whatever comes up in the moment comes up in the moment. You can't really plan for that. Um, mm. So, yeah, it helps me let go a bit of that in my own personal therapy so that i can just be with what is rather than be
being too married to I want to work on this specific goal yeah. in this way. Yeah. I think things can emerge from from that, like new new understandings and new concepts if you can't just like allow yourself just to to be and to, mm. to speak and not kind of a already have like a pre um pre-constructed framework in which you're going in with mm. wish to work on yourself yeah mm. right um any sort of final reflections or things we haven't spoken about that you wanted to talk about at all or i think there's Two points you raised, which I wanted to reflect on. One was about this, you mentioned Jordan Peterson's idea of like taking care of yourself and that nurturing mm -hmm. yourself. I, yeah. And um, it just reminded me of Tara Brack's self-acceptance book we read and, and how, yeah. I guess, the point that to have nurturing feelings at all, you know, you have to be allowed access to them. And if you've nev never had that reflected back at you you know it's going to be so hard to to find that bit of you that can treat you with that tenderness um, mm, mm. and i think yeah the the it reminded me of tyra brack's book because i guess that approach is perhaps you can do some of this on your own with a a mindful enough approach and as you listen to your own um get to know your own body through mindfulness and self-acceptance that that's um a way of allowing these split off parts of ourself to emerge um so yeah that was that was in my mind <laughs> and the second point you had in your mind or was they were the same the point yeah, yeah i was thinking jordan peterson <laughs> yeah. tara brack but yeah. no they're one, Tarabrak, one yeah. and the same thing yeah. that it's the yeah. finding self acceptance yeah but in order to do that you have to allow for these split off and disowned parts to emerge um and in, in regards to kind of the uh the ongoing question i think we we pose you know around like the striving yeah. versus acceptance side of things yeah. i think it's kind of a yeah accepting you know having an awareness of those those parts of ourselves that we can kind of um abandon for the sake of um kind of achieving goals or striving to get things a certain way. And I think maybe just from like a, an attachment perspective, thinking about kind of what, um, from what place are we doing that? Like we can mm. strive from a place of like understanding and acceptance, what mm. could be described as a secure base. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, for some people from, kind of like an anxious need to please other people or yeah. an avoidant need to like run away from certain parts of ourselves. So like yeah. striving to be like the best at work because yeah. we want to avoid our relationships or we, we can't accept failure. So we pick yeah. doing easy things for ourselves. You know, I there's, need there's to maintain there's the narrative I'm good enough. For, yeah. And that, yeah. so it's, yeah, it's the difference between, yeah, if we're doing it, from an internalized secure base then it's just play right it's just play and growth but yeah. if we're doing and it loss loss is is kind of part of the process as yeah. well yeah and and yeah but if we're doing it from a i'm only worthy if i strive and i'm good enough by achieving these goals like that's the only way i can feel i can maintain the story about myself uh, then yeah that's that really does tie into that narrative we've we've been kind of holding all year, really. 
Mm-hmm. Awesome. I think, yeah, it's really nice to kind of finish off with ways that ties into other books we've done. Mm. Uh, make sure we do that in the next podcast. I really <laughs> <good>. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think, uh, I think that's probably time, but um, next week we'll be covering uh, Jordan Peterson's new book, uh, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. So um, I think we can agree. We both really enjoyed his, his first one and um, we consume a fair bit of his, his content. So uh, yeah, looking forward to this, this next one and see what, uh, new lessons emerge from it. I think it's going yeah. to, um, yeah, there's always very thought, thought provoking, you know, yeah, hopefully in fun. many different kinds <laughs> of ways. Yeah. Fun and exploratory rather than striving to be good enough. That's what, that's the attitude I, I'm going to take with this next one. Yeah. See if we can carry that with us. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, re- really, um, yeah, really great to talk to you, man. I think, uh, yeah, that was certainly a, a very, dense book full of lots of information so i'm uh, yeah, happy yeah. where we uh we kind of focused on our the bits we enjoyed and um kind of dissected it appropriately without going into too much detail i guess no, I, <laughs> yeah, I think so, i think we yeah. got the gist of it across i'm really I'm, ha- I'm happy with that i feel more in touch with it than when we started so if if nothing else that's that's great yeah lovely stuff and uh enjoy the england game i will do mate. Well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah be watching that excited <laughs> see you later right. mate